I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a very inspiring lady who is an author, who is a mountaineer, Miss Lisa Thompson. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm good. Thanks for having me, John. So what's going on? I know we talked earlier, you're in Seattle and you kind of had a change of life uh, mid, uh, I guess, corporate career. How long did you have a corporate career? And uh, when you made that change, what made you make that change? Yeah. So I started that corporate career in two, oh gosh, 2000 and worked hard. You know, I was the only woman for many of those years at my level and at the levels above me. And so worked hard to obtain, you know, promotions and gain some visibility uh, for working hard in the office. And then in 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was completely unexpected you know, as it is for many people. And I, at that point, had started climbing. I'd been climbing for about seven years and was planning to attempt my first Himalayan peak that year. So the Himalaya is this huge mountain range that bisects Asia, and most of the highest mountains in the world are there. And so I received a diagnosis of breast cancer. And through that process, Um, It really made me just realize how fragile life is and how true it is that, you know, we get one shot at this life that we're going to lead and it's up to us to make the most of it. And so that is what provoked back in 2016, me shifting careers or shifting focus from having a corporate career to instead focus on climbing. You said you start dabbling in climbing (laughs) during the corporate career? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So dabble is a good word. Um, As I said, there were not a lot of women. I worked for a medical device company, not a lot of women there at that point in time. And the men, my peers would regularly go climbing. I lived in Seattle where climbing is really just a part of the culture here. It's, you know, we're fortunate okay. to be surrounded by multiple mountain ranges. And so the the guys in the office would go climbing frequently. And I so badly wanted them to see me as capable and to be considered a part of their group. And though, you know, I could have done the easy thing, which I lacked the courage to do back then, which would have been say like, hey, sounds like you had a great time this weekend. How about if I come with you? Climbing sounds like fun, something I'd like to learn. So I didn't ask, they didn't ask. And instead I just got frustrated about the whole situation mm-hmm. and just decided I'd go climbing on my own, which when I look back was a you know completely naive thing to do. But in the end, it so worked you out. Went, you, the first time you went, you went by yourself? Well, the first time I went, I climbed something, you know, simple, which really is hiking, but it's in the mountains. I remember that that peak is very popular here in Seattle. It's called Mount Sai. So I went there on my own one weekend. And I remember being so proud of my accomplishment of getting to the top and back. And again, really just hiking. Um, I called my father afterwards and was you know, just ecstatic about the fact that I'd climbed a mountain that day. But that was the beginning. There was, you know, something then that 
kept pushing me to want to do more and more of it. What is that motivation there? You know, if you, you know, you were dabbling and you come out and you're diagnosed with cancer, what was the motivation after being diagnosed for cancer? The extreme, the extremism of kind of going a little more serious. What, how did that feel? Why did you gravitate towards climbing? Yeah. So that's a, a question I have pondered a lot. Um, why did I gravitate towards it? I know why in the beginning, and that was that I wanted to prove myself. I wanted these guys in the office to think that I was capable too. And that emotion or that spite could only get me so far. And there was a point where I learned, or I realized, I sort of stopped, took a breath and realized that these situations in the mountains can teach me a lot about what I'm capable of, about what I'm passionate about about what it feels like for me to really be alive. And all of those things were starting to, like I was starting to get that message back in 2015. And then when I was diagnosed, it was just this really strong understanding that I don't want to have any regrets. I don't want to look back at the end of my life, however long or short that might be, and be like, man, why didn't I do that thing? Why didn't I pursue that hobby or that interest? Or why didn't I dig deeper into something that I found motivating? And so that, <clears throat> at the end, the end, it was really that belief of not wanting to have any regrets and wanting to pursue things that I was passionate about. And so that's what drove me to to focus more on climbing. But the the end of your question, John, was like, what? And I've asked myself this: is was I like made to be a climber, or did climbing make me who I am today? And I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I think I have a lot of personality traits that work well in the mountains. I like things to be under control. I like to plan things. I like to study and understand. I like, you know, perfection is something I've fought with for years. And those things work out well. Being a perfectionist is kind of important when you're at 28,000 feet on the side of a mountain. Mm -hmm. Does it always work well in real life? And so I think that it was sort of this combination of these personality traits that I have and finding this sort of really perfect outlet for them that also allowed me to learn a whole lot about myself and what I'm capable of. Do you believe in ancestral lineage? For sure. For sure. So so I always talk about environment, right? And you said that the Seattle area has a lot of climbers there. Was your family, you know, Norwegian navigators? No. Uh, What what is your... No, so my lineage, and this is so cool because I just, last, when I had COVID last summer, last winter, I spent my time like digging into all this because I find it super fascinating. So my family, a long line of like laborers and hardworking, like super hardy folks who came from Germany and Russia and parts of the UK. But as far as I can tell, no one who was into like adventuring or anything, any pursuits outside. Those parts of the world kind of lend itself to this type of environment, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, I think they grew up in very harsh circumstances and they seemed to persevere. And so I think that that part of my lineage, I think, definitely makes sense to me. Because I like, I just try to figure out people and what they're attracted to. So if you're attracted to an area, has that type of feel environment because i think tone and tone and law of attraction tones attracted to each tone each other's mm-hmm. tone right so i find that very interesting that your family's from those parts of the world and you obviously picked up on this very easily you know hence going back to my question why would you gravitate towards climbing compared to you know snowboarding or or you know water skiing you know <laughs> something like that so when you look at a mountain what do you look what 
what are you learning? You know, if you break yeah. that experience down, what are you learning at each, each mountain you go to, to try to climb? Yeah. And it's always something different. Um, and today I, I coach mountaineers and I always encourage them to ask this question. So when I look at a new mountain, I instantly get this just sense and desire and excitement to want to be up there. It looks like a puzzle to me. Like, it, you know, I'll try to figure out what the optimal route could be or might be. And I get super excited about putting the pieces of that puzzle together. And and those pieces don't just include the route or how to get up the mountain, but also include like what skills do I need to have in order to be safe on that mountain? What's the delta in those skills between where I am today and where I need to be? And how can I bridge that gap in order to be successful? I think those are like, you know, and then there's other things like weather and hazards like avalanche or rockfall. Like, are those things I need to be aware of and thinking about when I'm in the mountains? What do I think the temperatures are going to be? Is it going to be windy? How do I need to dress? What kind of food do I need to bring with me? So all of those things to me are like this big puzzle for me and my team to figure out when I'm climbing. But then there's this sort of deeper thing of what do you learn in that mm -hmm. situation? And that's, you know, as I said, once all that sort of spite wore off in my, you know, early days in climbing, I started to realize that these environments, these mountain places that I love really have a lot to teach me. There was a moment on Mount Everest as I was going to the summit, this is in 2016, where I, you know, I, I had studied the route meticulously. I expected this particular part of the climb to be pretty straightforward. We were at about 25,000 feet and I'm climbing along, which is really, you know, at that point I sort of walking. Um, and it was so hard. It was exhausting. And I remember sort of just stopped. I stopped moving and I watched someone's glove just tumble down the ice and fall away. And I realized something was wrong with me and I needed to figure out very quickly what that was. And it turns out that I had run out of oxygen. I tanked. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Oh, it should have been fine, was empty. And so I had a choice to make. I have a few options. I'm about to climb what's called um, the yellow band, which is the section of limestone at 25,000 feet. It's about 30 degrees. Um, and so at sea level, it'd be, you know, fun to climb, but at 25,000 feet with no oxygen, not so fun. And so my options are I could have stopped. I could have asked someone to bring me a fresh bottle of oxygen. I could have turned around and gone back to camp, walked a couple of hours to get there, or I could have continued. And again, I was in this very hypoxic state, but I chose to continue. And climbing that section of Mount Everest without oxygen was 
one of the hardest things I'd ever done to that point in my climbing career. But after it was over, I got that fresh tank of oxygen. What I realized was that we are so much stronger mentally than we give ourselves credit for. Like my body at that point was shutting down. It didn't have the oxygen that it needed to keep my brain happy or my muscles. So it was really just this, you know, deep sense of motivation to keep going mm-hmm. that pushed me through that scenario. When you kept going. So obviously you made it, right? <laughs> right. Yes. You, you, you're here. You made it. It was the right decision. Um, you're talking about environment, you know, is a big thing. It's, it's almost like you're engineering a process in a way because you're looking at percentages of what may or may not happen. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you teach that to somebody? I think another great question. I think it comes with experience. And I mm-hmm. think it another really big part of this equation, which I learned climbing K2, which is the second highest mountain in the world, is that sometimes it boils down to just listening to your gut feeling. Like there's mm-hmm. time I've been climbing in certain scenarios where I just, it just didn't feel right. Or mm-hmm. Someone wanted me to take a risk. So when I was descending K2, for example, which is notorious for being one of the deadliest mountains in the world. And my climbing partner wanted me to descend what is the most dangerous part of that route where the most people have died. Wanted me to descend it by what's called arm wrapping, which is this technique where you take the rope that's tethered to the mountain and you wrap it around your arm and then to create tension and then lean forward to create even more tension and you walk face first down the slope. So it's always gets my hackles up. It's a very, you know, it can be very daunting to walk face first down a steep slope, especially if it's icy as it was in this case. The other method is just to repel, which is to use the rope to again, create tension, but back down the the slope, like you maybe see a fireman doing. Mm -hmm. And my partner said it's, you know, it was getting crowded on the mountain. You need to arm wrap. And this is someone who I've climbed with and hugely respect for a decade. And there was just something about descending that way that didn't feel secure enough for me. It didn't feel right in that scenario. It would have been faster for sure, but it didn't feel right to me that day. And so I said no and I repelled. And so to answer your question, there's, you know, it took 10 years of climbing, of being in different scenarios and different situations to listen to that voice inside of me that knew I needed to make a different choice that was right for me. You know, there's no, the only way to learn that I think is to be in those scenarios in a safe environment, right? With people who are more experienced than you, who you trust to help you start to learn and build that voice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what honestly can save us in the mountains. Life is experience right so when you fixate those when you fixate those positions obviously the more experience the more information you have to make those decisions right how do you bottle that with what you do i mean if you're 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 teaching people and you're you're speaking and inspiring people um how do you bottle that for your narrative yeah a fantastic question i think what i can do and what i feel you know, I'm fortunate to have climbed, safely climbed many mountains. I will continue to climb, but I have no desire to take the risks that I took even five years ago. But what does feel important to me now is to share that in some way. And I think, you know, I get to do that every day by coaching athletes, but also by, as you said, speaking and sharing my process, sharing what I learned and mistakes that I made too. I I think it's so important that we a, that we as individuals take the time to look back when something didn't go smoothly mm-hmm. and to assess honestly what happened 
and then to share that with other people so they hopefully don't find themselves in the same situation. But bottling it, I don't, I don't know if it's, I really think in the case of climbing that it's important to get out there and just try it. You know, mountaineering has gotten so, so much more popular in the past five years. And I, you know, I've, I was talking to the owner of a guide company just a couple of weeks ago, and she said almost every day they get people who contact them that want to climb Mount Everest that have never climbed anything before. And that's mm-hmm. great, right? In some respects, it's fantastic that, you know, it's getting more popular and with that popularity should come education and it should come, you know, making these places that we love safer and more accessible. But I, I really believe you've got to just gradually learn and be out there with people you trust, understand their process and start to build that knowledge base and that experience on your own. Like you said, you have a team. What does the team look like that you climb with? So it totally depends on the mountain. If I'm climbing in the Pacific Northwest where I where I live, it's usually friends that I've climbed with for, you know, anywhere from two years to eight years. I just returned from climbing in the Himalaya, climbing a really fun peak called Chalatsi with a group of all women, which was fantastic. It was super fun to build this group of women who were you know, very accomplished in the mountains. And we actually very intentionally made the whole team women. So there weren't, you know, the, the porters who carried our loads to base camp were women. And the team that supported us at base camp was women, which is actually pretty, very rare to see in mm-hmm. the Himalaya. And so in that case, I knew three of the women I had climbed with before or knew, um, but everyone else I didn't. And it was, you know, sort of, there's always on a climbing team. Also answer that question from you know, most people who say they climb up, they sign up to climb Mount Rainier in Washington, or they sign up to climb Aconcagua in Argentina, they sign up with a commercial outfitter. And so very mm-hmm. often they don't know anyone else on that team. And so there's always this, you know, we're all egotistical, right? We all want to perform. We're there because we want to succeed. So there's always this sort of jockeying and assessing that goes on in the mountains to figure out, you know, who do I think is the strongest? Who do I think is not the strongest? And it's been, you know, oftentimes very hard for me to work through that and to fight that. And I will say that this, this, you know, climbing with all women just a couple of months ago, none of that happened. Like we really just felt this very strong sense of support for each other. And that made it a fantastic climb as a result of that. When you were with all women, do you feel like the decision-making was different? Yeah, I feel like everything <laughs> was different. <laughs> well, I don't think men and women are supposed to like each other anyway, but... Uh, there's times when I felt that way too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. What does that look like? I mean, if it's, if the decisions seem different to you. Yeah. So we had all, you know, there were f- four climbers, two from the U S two from Nepal, and then the support team that I mentioned. And we, like, we had all climbed on Everest. We were all very accomplished. Um, you know, the women from Nepal were rock stars, you know, in that culture because they've accomplished so much in the mountains as women. And we all have been through this scenario of not feeling like we are good enough, right? Of showing up to climb something and getting the vibe or even creating the vibe. I've often created this on my own that I'm not worth being here. Like I don't have the same level, level of experience. I don't have the same skill as everyone else. And so, you know, therefore I'm not sure I can do this. Mm-hmm. So we'd all been through that. And at one point we, you know, early on in this climb, we stopped and we said like, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't feel this performance anxiety or this really strong 
pressure to make sure that I'm perfect every day on this mountain, which is not to say that we let our guard down at all, but mm -hmm. it felt much more supportive and mm -hmm. much more like if you have a bad day, that's okay. If I have a bad day, that's okay. And mm -hmm. we're going to work through it as a team. And we did, you know, there were early on summit night, it's dark out and we're climbing and it's sort of mixed climbing. So rock and snow and ice. And we weren't a hundred percent sure which way the route went. And, you know, there's sort of an optimal way to climb. And there had been teams on the mountain before us um, who had left ropes for us and we weren't 100% sure the right way to go. And we stopped and, you know, two of us felt one way, the other one felt another way. And we just worked through it in a very supportive, transparent way. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, didn't feel a lot of ego in those moments where we had to decide something as a team. And it's not to say that that couldn't happen on a team mm -hmm. of men and women, but it has, it was a very refreshing feeling to work through mm -hmm. and to, to climb with all women just a couple months ago. Narratives in society have kind of set mental positions, right? Because I think you understand that your mind is a very, very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And instead of looking at, I don't know, I've been trying to figure out this way. How do you, how do you get people to lead by example and not worry about positions that have been created? Does that make sense? You yeah. know, because I think, I think we're in this space where linear things becoming linear uh, is, is muddled. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you took like a focus group of these females climbing a mountain and you see three top attributes come out of that, right? That show an example of strength. And then you go do the same thing with guys and you find three examples of strength there and take both those positions by, by leading by example. Mm -hmm. Right. And then look and looking at strengths on both sides instead of kind of going with the traditional cliche thought process that almost limits yourself. Totally. I'm big into, I don't know, I'm writing this book about unconscious bias. Right. And you mentioned, I think unconscious bias is, it's an era, you know, it's an era in our brains and it, the era comes from emotion. Right. So you said ego, ego is a, a somewhat of an emotion. So mm -hmm. if you take emotion out of that equation, I think you can find those leading by examples a much easier. So true. But we you know are I mean? egoic people. We're egoic yeah. beings. And we, we, most of us, have a yeah. very hard time putting that ego to the side and making decisions without it. What do women look to you for? You know, like if someone's out there and they they, they find a, a lot of interest in you and your story, what are they? What are some of the things you hear? Some of the things that I hear, and this has happened with early reviews of my book, Finding Elevation, are that that we should be able to define what our own boundaries are. We shouldn't let other people determine what we're capable of or not capable of. And I think that's true. And it makes me so happy to get that feedback from early readers. And I think that's true. It doesn't matter if your goal is to climb a mountain, your goal is to have your first child or buy a house. I think we often, and this again is where ego comes into this, right? We mm -hmm. are told, or we maybe tell ourselves that that goal is too big for us. I, you know, shouldn't have, I shouldn't be a vice president or it's not possible for me because I don't see anyone who looks like me that's done that before. Mm -hmm. And I think we can very easily let those narratives just run, right? And, and really define what we're capable of. Mm -hmm. And so often I think those things are put on us by mm -hmm. roles or culture 
or parents or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've learned and that, you know, it, it makes me happy to hear other people sort of mirror this back is that I only, I get to define what I'm capable of. And I struggle with that sometimes. Like I struggle with still believing that I'm, you know, can continue to grow my business, but I'm going to make that choice and I'm not going to let anyone else make that choice or do that for me. I'll ask you this question. How much negative persuasion compared to positive persuasion is it? What's the percentage split of that? On a climbing team or in general? Just in general. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Because I think we perpetuate more negativity than we do positivity. We do. So I we think do. if you if you were 60-40 or 70-30 negative, I wonder if you went the other way. Absolutely. What are you capable of? Yes. Or if you just stopped, you know, that when... When I'm climbing, if something gets really hard, I will just start repeating the words, I am strong in my, like every time I move a foot or a hand, I will say part of that phrase because it's amazing what can happen when you shut down the negative part of that narrative. It's also mm -hmm. amazing what can happen when you let it run wild and mm -hmm. it, it goes unchecked and there's, you know, that percentage becomes 90, 10, maybe. Mm -hmm. And you really have lost the belief that you're worthy or that you're capable. And so it's a very, it is not easy to do, but it's a very interesting question that you pose of what happens if you flipped it, if it was 60, mm -hmm. 40 and you made it 40, 60. Yeah. And Cause if you're, why don't we go to the darkest position instead of the, the most positive position? Right. Right. And I try to do my own podcast a little different. I try to interview people from the foundation up. Right. And there's, if you do that, you can find different parts of people's lives that are very, very similar. And it's all about that focus, where you put that focus and where that energy goes. And think if people understand that more from someone like you, I mean, that's that's only can help society, right? If you're a reader, what kind of reader is going to want to read your book? <laughs> Good, hopefully lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it will... So at, at its heart, Finding Elevation is a climbing memoir, right? It's about my journey of climbing mountains through the course of about 10 years of my life. So if, if readers are interested in what it's like to be on a high altitude mountaineering team, they will find it interesting. If they're curious about, you know, what is it like to climb K2, they will find it interesting. But I think and hope that where Finding Elevation is different than other climbing memoirs um, particularly those written by men, is that it's also a very deep dive into the emotional side of climbing those mountains and the emotional growth that occurs when you, you know, you start climbing sort of under those circumstances that I described, where I was doing it out of spite. And mm. you realize that these mountains and wild places have a whole lot to teach us. And then that's threatened to be taken away from you. And so it's really a very personal look into me learning what I was capable of um, and me finding my voice, not just as a climber, but also as a woman. Some, I love one early review said that it's a story for, that goes from self-doubt to self-discovery, which if I had to bottle it up into one sentence, that's what I would use. Self-discovery. Yeah. Has there ever been a female like, TV series or movie uh, about climbing, a female climber? Far fewer. There are some documentaries, but if you're, you know, look at mainstream climbing, most of them are about men. And the, you know, the percentage is, is changing. When I started climbing in 2005 or 2008, I was 
I don't want to say always, I was 98% of the time, the only woman on a climbing team mm-hmm. and it's changing. Now there are more women, you know, entering high altitude mountaineering than men, which is fantastic. It means it's getting a little easier for us to do so, mm-hmm. but still, you know, if you were to search Netflix now for mountaineering documentaries, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that focused on a woman. When you started, did you, I mean, what was the percentage of females climbing when you started? Very small. Like I, I didn't, I knew maybe one other mountain guide, this is 2008, 2009, who was a woman out of like the 50 mountain guides that I knew today, that number is more like 10 out of 50, just, you know, in my little circle. So it's, it's growing and it's getting easier for women to, you know, and part of it is like the barriers are higher for women. They still don't make mountaineering boots for women. (laughs) <laughs> women's sizes, you know, gear is met for like the size of a man's hand, not my hand. You know, and the whole other side of that is just, there's not a lot of people of color in the mountains either. So things are changing. It's becoming more diverse and I think easier for people, you know, who look like me to be in the mountains, but we still have a long way to go. Maybe it's a movie pitch. I would right? love this. <laughs> maybe it's a movie pitch. I mean, that's a great story. I mean, maybe it's a movie pitch and then you have your uh, clothing line, your female clothing line after the movie. Yes, please. That would be amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a <laughs> yes. big deal. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it's a big deal for, for women too. And for, I think anyone who perceives this barrier to pursuing something that they find fun. So I would, I would love, and part of my hope with finding elevation is that it just gets more women excited about being in the mountains. I would love it if that became more mainstream and, you know, took the form of something like a documentary. I would love it if gear companies, you know, there's this sort of phrase like shrink it and pink it. Like that was, that's how women's mountaineering gear is still largely today. Like it's just tinier version of a man's size and it's, we can do a lot better. Well, if you're listening out there, there's... If you're trying to get into this business, remember there's no female gear. And maybe uh, this is something that Lisa is going to uh, solve the problem for. I would love um, it. And the last question would be like <laughs> if, if a female is trying to get into mountain climbing, you said there's barriers. What would be a process if someone hasn't ever climbed before? Yeah. So now there are great women-focused groups around the country that focus, you know, like She Rocks is one of them. Chicks with Picks is another one of them that are focused on women learning how to climb and women being in the mountains. I've learned a lot from men. I don't want to diminish any of that, but I'm very passionate now about getting more women climbing and in the mountains. So if I were curious, reach out to me. I'm happy to point you in the right direction or help where I can. And I would look for a group where I lived that was focused on women or that was very open to you know improving diversity in the mountains and find mentors there people that you relate to that are really stoked to teach um, that you can start to get out with and learn and build your confidence with. And then, you know, and we spoke earlier about your family. Now is your mom and dad, are they in the Seattle area? Where's, where's other parts of your family? So I grew up in central Illinois where the highest elevation is 120 feet. Okay. And my family is all still there. All of them, except okay. one aunt and uncle who live near me in Washington. Next few years for Lisa, I mean, what's the what's the next goal? Yeah, so I want to continue supporting these all women's climbs, probably in the Himalaya, with some sort of philanthropic aspect to them. Um, mm-hmm. This last climb in the Himalaya, we raised money for women's education. 
So that was super important. And I'm hoping to repeat that in the U.S., in the Pacific Northwest this coming summer, and then in Ecuador early next year. So that's something I'm super excited about. And I just want to continue growing my business, Alpine Athletics, too. I'll keep climbing, obviously, but, you know, what brings me the biggest joy now is just to help other people reach their goals in the mountains. Uh, Name of the book again. Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. If somebody wants to find anything, Lisa Thompson, um, where do do we find that? Yep. So you can head to Instagram. My handle there is Lisa Climbs. And Lisa Climbs is also the URL of my website. And then my company is alpineathletics.net. Well, I think you have a very niche narrative that has a lot of room to grow. Thank you. You Maybe in uh, five years, I'll look back and say, I I spoke to her about that. Now she's the the pioneer for female mountain climbers. (laughs) I'll give you all the credit. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about some good things and, you know, someone, if they want to, find out about mountain climbing for females, you know, they could listen to this now or they could listen to this in five, 10 years. So I think we got some good evergreen content that could teach somebody some stuff. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Yeah, that was uh, definitely a different world and and interesting. Well, you ask great questions. I like it when people ask questions that, you know, dig your questions dug a lot deeper. Um, You know, it's fun for me to have that kind of a conversation as opposed to just talking about like, how you start climbing and what it's like to climb Everest and that stuff. Yeah, I want to. I want to make you think a little bit. You know I what I mean? It. Yeah, because that's a that's a big deal, and I think it helps people understand things a little more as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't think people really relate, really don't connect themselves to what they do like they should. And I think the more that we can con- convey those processes, the the better people can get in whatever they're doing. Yeah, that is a really strong message. I agree with you. All right. I appreciate it. This has been yeah. author, mountaineer, extraordinaire, uh, Lisa Thompson. <laughs> Look for her new book. My name is John Edmonds Cosma. I'm the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, John. See you later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.